Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Palestinian prisoners and administrative detainees across prisons and detention centers in Israel are continuing their protest against the repressive measures imposed on them by the Israeli prison authorities. Israeli authorities had imposed new additional restrictions and measures on the prisoners in the aftermath of the Gilboa prison break in September last year when six Palestinian detainees managed to escape from prison before being apprehended a few days later. Some of the retributive measures imposed by the Israeli authorities were separating prisoners by political affiliation, solitary confinement, cutting off access to canteen facilities, and reducing the break time allotted to them to spend in the prison yard. According to the Palestinian Prisoners Club, the prisoners launched their actions on February 5th, They have begun to disobey prison rules, are refusing daily security checks, and staging sit-ins in prison yards. The prisoners have reportedly formed a follow-up committee composed of all the different political factions among the prisoners. The committee represents the prisoners in negotiation with the prison authorities and decides the course of actions for the prisoners' protest. As per reports, Palestinian prisoners are set to launch a mass hunger strike on March 25th if their demands are not met. Around 500 administrative detainees are also involved in a historic protest against their arbitrary detention. They are boycotting Israeli military courts for a record 65th day in a row, refusing to be present at initial hearings, appeal hearings, and later hearings in Israeli military and civilian courts. Among them, four detainees are under the age of 18 and one is a woman. The detainees launched their protest on January 1st under the banner, quote, our decision is freedom, no to administrative detention. Several detainees are refusing to meet their interrogators from the Israeli domestic intelligence agency, Shin Bet. Those suffering from health problems requiring medical care have also started boycotting the prison's clinics, medicines, and medical checkups. They are demanding an end to the policy of administrative detention and the immediate release of all detainees. Many Palestinian detainees have in the past embarked on hunger strikes to protest their illegal detention and secure their release from Israel. The international community and human rights groups have for years called on Israel to stop the policy of administrative detention where Palestinians are detained indefinitely without charge or trial for extended periods of time. Administrative detention orders can be renewed every four to six months based on secret evidence which is not shared even with the detainees or their lawyers. Despite international criticism, the number of orders issued on a yearly basis is steadily increasing. Israel passed 1,595 such orders in 2001, a significant spike from the 1,114 orders issued in 2020. 1,742 orders were issued in 2016, among the highest documented. Since 2015, 
Israel has issued 8,700 administrative detention orders against Palestinians, according to the Palestinian Prisoners Society, PPS. This year, 96 orders have been issued in the month of January alone. In total, there are approximately 4,600 Palestinian prisoners in 17 Israeli jails, including 32 women and 180 minors, and 500 administrative detainees. This week, we speak with Dan from Michigan Abolition and Prisoner Solidarity. MAPS is an exemplary grassroots abolitionist group which arose out of the 2016 national prison strike and, specifically, the Kinross Uprising in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Dan lays out this history, as well as undertaking an inventory of COVID-19 in Michigan prisons, based on a zine of prisoner reflections and reports which MAPS released recently. The pandemic was inflamed inside Michigan prisons by both negligence and repression, but prisoners have organized in response both on an everyday level for the sake of survival, as well as carrying out major protests and revolts. MAPS stands for Michigan Abolition and Prisoner Solidarity. And we got started in 2016, in kind of in the wake of the national prisoner strike, which obviously there were lots of actions all over the country. There was one particularly impactful action in Michigan at one of the prisons in the, the Upper Peninsula here called Kinross Correctional Facility. And there ended up being a big riot there. Um, as you can imagine, the, the, there was a lot of retaliation that happened in the wake of, of the riot. So hundreds of prisoners were uh, put in segregation, were being transferred all over, and MAPS kind of formed to try to support those people who were facing a lot of retaliation from um, their organizing as part of the, the prisoner strike. And so the group has been around for about five years now. We tried to you know, support those prisoners initially, following where they're being transferred to, um, doing calling campaigns to you know, get them out of segregation, that kind of stuff. Um, and since then, we've you know, branched out into other kinds of, of organizing, doing you know, street protests, um, to support prisoners, other kinds of targeted campaigns, connecting prisoners with media to get um, information out and circulating. Um, and another thing that we do is we, we publish a quarterly uh, newsletter that we send into prisoners in, in Michigan. Um, there's about 170 some subscribers now. The newsletter has been, uh, our articles are usually written by prisoners, although we've been having trouble with that more recently, I should say. We do kind of like popular education stuff as well. We put together events to inform people about the prison system in Michigan and abolitionist politics. And we, we also organize in, in, in coalition with other groups around certain kinds of actions um, and supporting certain kinds of campaigns. So, so we do kind of a lot of different, different things that we've been doing over the, the past five years. Amazing, that's, that's wonderful. So uh, recently you all published a zine of writings by mostly prisoners or all prisoners on kind of life during COVID or COVID in, in prisons. And it's something that kind of got some, generated some media attention and there's just been a lot of, it's been a lot of interest and it was a really interesting project. Could you just talk to us a little bit about, about that project? Sure. The, so the zine is called um, The Pandemic Inside COVID-19 in Michigan Prisons. I mentioned that one of the things that MAPS does is we print this newsletter 
we started doing that in 2017. And the idea was that, you know, in, prisoners would be able to, to write essays and analysis and sort of we could circulate that um, among prisoners and create all kinds of different dialogues, right? Between people uh, inside and outside and between us and people on the inside and stuff like that. When the pandemic started, like around like spring or summer of 2020, all of a sudden the Michigan Department of Corrections started to block our newsletter. And we've had the newsletter get blocked in the past. They would say, you know, maybe a particular article had some language in, in, in it that, you know, they would claim violated their mail policy. But the rejections that we would get would be very specific to the language in a particular article. But all of a sudden, in, in, in the context of the pandemic, they started blocking the newsletter as a whole. And the justification that they gave was that prisoner writing was not allowed to be sent in because they claimed that it violated their mail policy to have prisoners communicating with other prisoners. And so they just started banning the, the newsletter outright. And it was clear that the order to do that was coming from like the central office in Lansing. And so we were, we were getting these submissions. We were getting letters and, and articles that prisoners were sending us, but we, we all of a sudden weren't able to, to print them in the newsletter as we originally would have done. Um, and so initially we kind of weren't sure exactly what to do. And we were, you know, just assuming that, you know, we would, we would kind of hold on to the submissions and eventually maybe we would, we would print them later in a, in a, in a later issue once the, the kind of prohibition got resolved, but that didn't, didn't end, up, end up happening and still hasn't been resolved. In the meantime, we kind of realized that, that we were getting a lot of reports um, and essays, kind of personal essays and letters requesting support, letters describing the situation that were all about, you know, what it was like on the inside, what the pandemic was like inside Michigan prisons. And we realized that we, we had enough of these submissions to create a zine um, that even if we weren't able to send it inside prisons, um, we could circulate it on the outside and help get the word out about what was going on um, and give people a different perspective on the kind of vulnerability, the, the way that the pandemic is playing out uh, inside and the kinds of vulnerability that it produces and also how prisoners are responding. Could you maybe just walk us through a couple of the submissions or just maybe things that those submissions in the zine kind of revealed, maybe some of the interventions of, of that project? You know, we know from, from pretty early on, there was a lot of reporting about the kind of statistics of prisoner infections and the kind of COVID death rate inside prisons very early on, I think in maybe May of 2020, there were news articles talking about how Michigan, Michigan had the highest number of prisoner deaths uh, in the country due to COVID. And, you know, there's also like, you can pretty easily get information about the infection rate of prisoners who are who are prisoners and compare that infection rate to the, the kind of general population. So, you know, and we know that the infection rate is significantly higher for people on the inside. And we know that the death rate is also significantly higher uh, for people inside prisons. So that, you know, you, you can get this like really general sense, right? Based on these statistics of a kind of a, a comparison, right? Like how are people being subjected to premature death? How is kind of violence spatially differentiated on the inside and on the outside? 
but the statistics don't really capture other dimensions of the pandemic. And so the pieces that we put in the zine provide you know, a really different perspective that kind of both like fills out details that the statistics don't capture. And in some places, maybe even lets us push back against some of the assumptions that are kind of built into the statistics, right? So, you know, for example, one thing that comes through really clearly in the submissions, in the essays that we published in the zine and the letters is the kind of emotional or affective experience, a kind of, you know, profound terror of living through a lethal pandemic uh, in conditions that make it basically impossible to keep yourself safe, right? Like we know that people are in these cells, crowded cells. It's impossible to socially distance. They don't really have masks or other, you know, PPE. Everyone is trying their best not to get sick, but at the same time, they know basically it's, you know, it's only a matter of time. Uh, one of the authors of one of the pieces in the zine says that, you know, he, he points out that like all the guys he knows have been preparing their wills, right? Um, and this is like pretty early on, like they all know that there's a good likelihood that they could die. So, so the writing, you know, really captures that kind of emotional experience of living through the pandemic, the experience of being sort of placed in the path of death. There are other things about kind of like the, the way that prisons operate, right? The question of like retaliation, people fearing trying to speak up or complain about the, the, the fact that they're not getting masks or whatever because um, they're, they're worried that guards will put them in, in uh, solitary, right? And, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the authors of the zine um, who wrote uh, one of, uh, really early on was kind of writing, uh, somebody who, who had um, serious preconditions, right? was very worried about his health. He wrote um, this letter where he said, you know, that he was so worried about dying that he knew that he was gonna face retaliation for sending the letter, but that he did it anyway. Actually, after the zine came out, he did, this guy, his name is Eugene Marr. He did a, an interview with a, a local TV station that reached out to him because of the zine. Um, and after doing the interview, he was placed in uh, solitary, right? And so, you know, the, these fears of retaliation, fears of retaliation for speaking out, even fears of retaliation for just saying like, oh, I feel like I have symptoms, you know, are real and they're well-founded. Another thing that you see in the zine is that you kind of get a, a granular sense of that, of like how the virus spreads, not just kind of like naturally, like it's not inevitable necessarily that the virus spreads, but that it can be spread in particular ways by purposeful decisions on the part of prison officials or by, you know, just like negligence, like just real serious negligence. So like, for example, the guards are going in and out of the prisons, right? And uh, it turns out that as people in the zine say that the guards don't have to get tested. One of the authors sort of poses the question, right? Who's the real killer? Is it, the, is it COVID or is it the staff? The ones who are bringing COVID into us and like infecting us. And one of the letters, you know, highlights that the guards are getting hazard pay uh, they make extra money because they're working in, you know, dangerous conditions, right? Where they could get infected and they get, you know, something like an extra $700, I think is what the article says, added to their paychecks, which incentivizes them to come in to the facilities, even when they're sick, right? 
So you see like a very, you see very clearly, right? What are the mechanisms that spread COVID so effectively inside or even bring COVID inside um, in the first place? There's another issue, I mean, that has to do with like prisoner transfers between facilities. One of the submissions talks about how prisoners brought into a facility that where COVID hadn't gotten to yet. And the prisoners who were brought there didn't have to quarantine before they were placed in general population, right? Um, and so you see how, how the, another it's another mechanism by which um, COVID can spread between facilities. And we know that also that, that transfers can be used to kind of punish uh, prisoners who are doing organizing. So you can see how people maybe will protest because of the lack of COVID protections in a facility, and then they'll be transferred uh, as a punishment, which will then further spread COVID to the next facility, right? So you can see how these cycles further spread the disease throughout the system. There's a particularly like egregious example that one of the articles talks about just blatant negligence where um, the prison staff at one of the prisons called Macomb Correctional Facility, they misread, I don't know, like 50 test results, 50 COVID tests and placed a bunch of prisoners who had tested negative into the COVID housing unit with all the people who tested positive, basically guaranteeing that they would get, get infected. So the, 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 the specifics of the, the specific details, I think, give us a really, a, a much more granular picture of how the pandemic plays out, how infections spread, uh, who are the actors who make this happen? What are the mechanisms by which this stuff happens? Um, that can you know, both help us understand how, how it happens, but also kind of give us um, a clear picture of you know, potentially places to target in our organizing. And I think one last thing that I'll just say about what the, the zine highlights that maybe helps us push back against the picture that the statistics give us of this kind of intense vulnerability, right, is that we also know that prisoners were, were organizing and protesting. One of the submissions uh, talks about uh, a protest that ended up be it ended up basically becoming a, an uprising um, at Muskegon Correctional Facility in the summer of 2020. It was obviously repressed, right, uh, with with force. But it's just one example of what the what prisoners have done to kind of keep themselves safe, right? They're this sort of more spectacular kinds of actions like that, and then they're you know more kind of like everyday types of actions of sharing resources, sharing food, sharing masks, sharing cleaning supplies, um, and trying to work together the best they can to keep themselves safe. So you, you're kind of already leading into my next question there, which is that, you know, you've talked a little bit about how prison officials have kind of reacted, taking advantage of the crisis, as one would imagine that they might kind of centralize control and to cross boundaries that they didn't feel like they could cross before, like shutting your zine out of the prison system, but he also mentioned you've also mentioned some new forms of resistance. What do can you talk just a little bit more about what the kind of long terms of what what COVID has made possible and impossible in organizing, and maybe what some of the long term effects of COVID are might be on or the pandemic might be on prison organizing. I'm not really sure if the the pandemic has taught us anything new. But it's definitely intensified or made really visible all the violence and injustice of the prison industrial complex, you know, that that already exists. 
so like again we know we knew already that prisons subject people to premature death um but the pandemic sort of throws this into relief and 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 again as i was kind of saying before it's not just the fact of death but the mechanisms through which prisons kill it can be things as you know as simple as like the architecture of the the cell right or like how overcrowding turns a, a cell into a kind of an infection multiplier um or you know, uh, we know that like prisons are not like somehow isolated um, from like the rest of society or whatever. But again, uh, the way that like guards bringing uh, COVID in and out right of the prison really highlights that connection, the the kind of continuities between the inside and the outside um, in in useful ways. If I had to say uh, what the pandemic highlights in terms of maybe opportunities for organizing. One thing is that I would say is that prisons are really vulnerable to breakdown. There's so much reproductive labor that has to happen in the prison. And when people, when staff are out sick or when prisoners are sick and they can't do that labor, like making food, for example, or keeping spaces clean, or in the context of COVID, like doing medical care, right? Providing medical care, things can really fall apart really quickly. And that's obviously really terrible for the people on the inside, but it also can create these kind of sparks, right? That, that lead to organizing and protests and stuff like that. I mean, we've heard reports from people on the inside who are telling us, you know, this facility is a powder keg right now because it's so short staffed. It's a powder keg because people aren't getting food, right? The warden, you know, maybe in the kitchen, like making peanut butter sandwiches for people because there's nobody else who can do it or something like that. So there's a kind of a vulnerability that COVID really highlights and how much depends on the work that the, the, the work that the prisoners themselves are, have to do basically to keep the prison running. Maybe another opportunity or another place where COVID highlights a kind of a vulnerability in the prison system is tensions between guards and sort of the prison administrators. We know that guards are getting sick and dying. There's been, in Michigan, there's been, I don't know, 10 or 11 guards who've died since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and we know that even before the pandemic started, the, the guard like union was already um, really unhappy with the leadership. The, things are even more complicated and tense right now. A lot of guards are quitting because of the conditions and the ones who are left who haven't quit and who, haven't, who aren't sick, you know, uh, have to work uh, extra shifts. So people are really unhappy there, not to defend the guards, but to sort of highlight a, a vulnerability, right? There's a weakness um, there potentially that could be exploited, both pushing on maybe on both sides, right, of that, of that conflict. A third thing maybe that I would say is that there's another, another opportunity that COVID has kind of opened up according to some of the people that we've heard from, is that there are openings for even sort of certain limited forms of autonomy on the part of prisoners. And that, that kind of obviously very limited, but nevertheless uh, real forms of autonomy come through certain forms of like mutual aid and stuff like that, but that are made possible because of the particular dynamics of the pandemic, which make guards uh, reluctant to come in contact with, with prisoners, right? And so some 
folks on the inside have told us about how because you know the prisons are short-staffed, there aren't that many guards to begin with on the, in the facility. And the ones who are there are really worried about getting sick. And so, you know, they, they're kind of a little bit more hands-off in certain ways. Now, obviously, that's not the case for the most part. And we also know that there's a lot of abuse that's still going on and the retaliation, all the stuff that we've I, I already talked about. But, but in certain situations, it seems like prisoners have been able to come together in a way that's a little bit more open and share supplies and food and share, you know, and talk uh, more freely and build some sort of power among themselves without the guards kind of disrupting it. Obviously, that's not to say that the the pandemic hasn't been uh, a disaster, but there are these kind of interesting opportunities that may also be opened up at the same time. I just want to ask a question kind of, you know, we've been through kind of uprising, you know, on the outside, the George Floyd rebellion and all of the kind of abolitionist kind of currents that took on new life then. And here we are kind of going into the third year of the pandemic. What what does the state of prison organizing feel like where you are kind of post Floyd going into a third year of the pandemic, where are things and where do you think things are kind of going where you all are situated? Well, the the George Floyd uprising obviously opened up a lot of space for abolitionist organizing um, and really fueled really significant expansion of abolitionist organizing and, and just kind of general interest in abolition. It feels like that energy has dried up or disappeared. Um, and it feels like we're currently feels like we're li- we're kind of living through a backlash or a lull of some sort. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of momentum around abolition anymore. Uh, in that sense, it feels very different um, than it did in the summer of 2020. People are still organizing here. There have been sort of car caravans outside of of prisons locally that were organized as part of shut them down, the, de- the shut them down demonstrations that um, Jeff Hustler speaks called for. And, you know, that those actions were very successful here. Um, there have been calling campaigns and we're still able to sometimes in certain ways put in, put pressure on prison uh, officials to say, let somebody out of segregation or something like that, get people medical attention that they need. But a lot of the wide open horizon that I think was really opened up uh, in the summer of 2020 feels to have narrowed a lot. Like, for example, I was rereading the, the zine before the interview and I there was one essay that I had kind of forgotten about that talks about all of the other countries that have let out tens of thousands of prisoners at the beginning of the, the pandemic. And there was a, for a while, there was a, a real feeling that something like that could happen in the US. And there was organizing to try to push for people to, for kind of mass uh, paroles, right, being granted. And that just hasn't happened. In fact, in Michigan, there were even less paroles granted in the, in the context of the pandemic than the year before. So in some ways, I mean, although organizing has continued here, it feels like the moment has has shifted and we're we're on the back foot. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. 
And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at KiteLineRadio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.